This morning is our last time around the table, and as we think about the table this morning, um, I often think about this, that, that sometimes our, our table looks, looks different, whether it's at holiday gatherings or uh, gatherings of, of family, whether it's uh, in parts or maybe when the whole family is together, um, there, sometimes there's, there's chairs that are empty. Um, because of different reasons and, and different stories. And uh, this weekend, I, I, was, I was thinking um, just of, of Memorial Day and, and, and what this weekend means and, and represents for uh, some in our, our country, but really for all of us. And uh, one of the things that is different uh, around our table uh, in the last um, decade or so has, has been one that is missing at the table in, in our family, and his, his name is Murray Daniels. And uh, Murray was, uh, uh, my wife's, is, is my wife's uncle, and Murray served in uh, the Navy back in uh, the, the 40s, if I'm getting my time period right. Uh, but he was uh, one of the uh, men on one of the ships in, in Pearl Harbor, and uh, can, can tell you a story of, of, you know, his ship getting hit and being in the water and experiencing that and, and surviving that. And, and, uh, but but he, he, missing at the table is, is, are those stories. I was hearing something this morning as I was driving in, um, and it was telling us that, that back in World War II, 12% of the, the country um, you know, had somebody in their family that, that was in some way serving our country. Uh, today, that, that has fallen off greatly to, to almost less than 1% this morning people that have somebody related to them in their family that, that is serving. And so uh, we, we kind of lost a sense of, of service to our country in a little way in our country. And, and I was just thinking this morning, we've, we've lost some of the, the, the stories. And, and sometimes around your table, maybe those stories have gone when, when people have, have passed on. And this morning, I want to share you a story back in, in 1972 of, of two men of great valor and great courage. And we think of, of men and, and women who have served before, whether it's in the Army, the Marines, the Navy, uh, whether it's Navy SEALs or whatever way they've served our country, we think of courage. Uh, we think of valor. We, th- we think of uh, men and women who are willing to, to risk their own lives on, on behalf uh, of us uh, and on behalf of our country's values. And in 1972, in Vietnam, there's these two guys uh, the first guy's name is, is Norris. We'll just call him Norris. Uh, there's a movie, there's books made after these guys. Some of you guys might have uh, known these movies. I didn't until uh, just recently. But, but Norris was, was a gentleman, part of the Navy SEALs. And, and there was a, a period in, in the battle in, in Vietnam where a, a lot of our planes were, were getting hit, were getting hit down. And, and some of those uh, planes that came down, some of the pilots uh, obviously survived and were on enemy, enemy territory and needed to be rescued. And there's a great story of how Norris and, and some others uh, dressed up as fishermen and, and went past the enemy lines uh, in disguise to rescue pilots who'd been shot down. And for Norris on this rescue mission, they went in and, and they were able to get to three and they got to three, and actually one of them, uh, as they were, got detected, one of them was shot and didn't make it out. But, but as the story goes, two pilots w- were rescued that day, and, and, and Norris received a, a medal of honor. 
Well, it's interesting, some time later in the same war, Norris would, would find himself on a mission. And on this mission with other men of valor was one man by the name of Thornton. And, and Thornton became very important that day to Norris. Norris, receiving the Medal of Honor uh, because of his great rescue mission, um, found himself on the other end on this day. They became under great enemy artillery, uh, gunfire, a gunfight broke out, and, and Norris had been hit. In fact, he had been hit in the eye and was struggling to survive. And, and the story goes that this gentleman, Thornton, stood up on that day and rose to the challenge and helped rescue the men and helped rescue specifically Norris taking Norris to uh, the shore and, and waiting there for uh, the boat to come where they would get on and eventually be able to get Norris care and get him to where he would survive. It was a great story of, of honor and, and Thornton, just like Norris, receiving a medal of honor. And, and we know many stories like that over the years of great valor, of great courage, and of rescue. And this morning, as, as we look at this last remaining word from James in this letter, these two significant verses, it gives us a great picture of the church, a great picture of the mission that the church is to continue to be on, that, that you and I are on a rescue mission, that you and I are to be on this mission to one another as well. Um, and so this morning, as we look at this text, I, I want you to think of this as a courageous work that you and I are called to as truly the one another community. And so this morning, that we are called to this work of rescue, this work of securing as well that we will see. And so look, if you would, at these two verses this morning, 19 through 20 in James chapter 5. James ends his letter a little different than most letters in the New Testament. Most New Testament letters have uh, uh, maybe a, a parting prayer. Uh, they have a list of names a lot of times, of, of greetings and, and messages to people. And here James ends a little, may, uh, some may say abruptly, uh, but he definitely ends with a mission, a responsibility that is given to the church. And he begins like this in these last two verses of verse 19, saying, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. First thing I want to ask this morning is what do we see here? What, what do we see in this text, in this one sentence? I think the first thing we see is we see some words, some key words. The first word I think we see is the word truth. And I want us to know this morning there, there is truth. And that we know from the word of God that God is truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus says of himself that I am the way, I am the truth. Jesus prays to the Father in John 17, 17 and says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In the gospels, Jesus will say this, that there is a, a narrow path and there is a wide path. Few will follow the narrow path, and many will follow the wide path, the path of destruction. Now, that narrow path is truth, and truth is narrow. 
Truth is narrow in the sense of truth finds its resting place in who God is and who God alone is. That God is the God of truth. And, and, and then we find in this word that one is straying from the truth. Not only that, we see some other words here, three other key words, the word error. And so that, that's obviously uh, one who uh, is not following the truth, so it's opposite of the truth. And we see the word uh, sinner as well. We'll talk about that word as well. What does that mean? Who is that? Who does James have in mind? And then also uh, the word way. And so what does the word way mean as well? And so real simply, uh, we, we know that, uh, that we all live according to a way. Our, our life is lived a certain way. We, we either live according to truth or we don't. We live in air, which would be opposite of the truth. We're doing one or the other. And James obviously has in mind here that the truth uh, of God and the revealed word of God and those who walk out of sync with this truth are in sin, are in error. And that's who he's referring to as this one who is the sinner. If you think back to this letter that, that James has written, um, what, what has he mentioned uh, in, in, in uh, this church in regards to walking in error? How have they walked in error? How have they walked against the truth? How have they strayed from the truth. And you think about in uh, places uh, like James 3 where he says they've used their tongue wrongly because the tongue is uncontrollable. Uh, and so the misuse of their words. Not only that, we find in other places favoritism. At the expense of other brothers and sisters, uh, they have uh, chosen possessions. They've chosen riches over caring and loving one another. And there's many other different ways that we've seen James addressing their straying. They've slandered one another, their, their lack of care and love toward one another. And then I think the, the heart of James' message is found in James chapter 2. Do you remember what, what James asked in James chapter 2 and verse 14? He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James was talking about the idea that, that one believes that they have this faith, this, this saving knowledge, this faith that they have in Jesus Christ, yet they have no works. They, they have nothing that shows they've experienced the life-changing salvation that comes through Christ alone. And so James continued, and if you want to look there with me this morning in James chapter 2, verse uh, 15, he continues, he says, if a brother or sister is without clothing or in need of daily food, and so obviously this was a problem. They weren't caring for those in need. And in verse 16, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm to be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? And so James says, they, they overlook the needs of others, of caring for one another. And so where is the fruit? Where, where is the expression the, the showing, the demonstration that one has truly been saved. And in verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, it is dead, being by itself. And then he continued. And he said, someone well, well may say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And listen to what he says in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. And so what James is saying here is that there is a faith that some may have, but it's not saving faith. 
And so what kind of faith is he talking about? This faith that the demons have. It's this faith that is mere mental. It's this knowing. It's knowledge. The demons know God in the sense that they know who he is. They recognize, yes, there is a God. They know him very well. They know that there is Jesus, his son. They get that. They understand that. They know that there is a truth. But yet, their life has not been changed by it. They, they don't know him in the sense of having a relationship with God, obviously, that comes through Jesus Christ alone. And so there is a different knowing. There, there is this, what James says, this faith that, that has not truly transformed or changed. And so he's addressed that with the church here. And if you go down to verse 23, he says, The scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Abraham had a faith, a faith in the Lord that, that also had works. His works didn't save him, but his works was a showing. His, his works were, were fruit of a life that was changed, a life that was transformed. And so James in this church is addressing, hey, this is a truth that, that we must understand. It's significant. It's the gospel. It is what we, we're, the church is, is built on. It's a foundation. You go back to the disciples and what Jesus says in, in Matthew 16. He's talking about that the church has been built on this, <clears throat> on this rock. It's been built on the teaching of the apostles of the truth of God and what the apostles would go out and communicate. And what was the central theme of their communication was this, that there is a faith that saves and that God pursues us and, and rescues us and that we can have a relationship with him. Even though we are sinners and we are far from him, we're separated from him, we can have a relationship with him through Christ. He forgives us of our sin, and we can know him, and our life is forever changed. And that's what saving faith does. It changes us to where once we walked this way, now we walk this way. We walked according to what we thought was right. There's a way that seems right to men, Proverbs tells us. It's a way of foolishness. In our own eyes, it may seem right, but it's not. And what happens when we come to know God through Christ, we start realizing, okay, now my life is to be lived this way, down this narrow path of truth, and my life is forever changed. And that's what happened to Abraham, and James is questioning with the church, has, has this happened to you? Because they were mistreating people. They weren't caring for one another. They weren't loving one another. They were slandering one another. And so James addresses this truth. And some have strayed from it. Now, what's interesting in this, in this text, I think there's a few scenarios going on. If you look at this last sentence, the, these two verses, as he mentions this word sinner here, I think he's clear on, on what the truth is, and he doesn't want us to stray from that truth. And that our life would be transformed by that truth and continue to bear repentance as we continue to, to walk with the Lord. But who is the sinner in this text? Who is that? And what, what is he referring to? I, I think in light of we, what we just read, I think there's possibly among the church and the community those who, who have not this saving faith. That they come and, and they participate 
but they've never had their, their life changed by the power of God. They've never had their life radically changed and saved through Jesus Christ. And so one possible, I think, um, answer to who is the sinner is that. One who's outside of the kingdom of God, who doesn't know Christ. I think secondly, though, who is this one who's straying? This, this, this one who he calls a sinner living in error. It could be one who's saved, but yet struggling. Uh, maybe struggling with, with a sinful habit. Maybe struggling with uh, an addiction. Maybe struggling with, with his, his, his tongue. Maybe struggling in different ways of, of how they're caring for one another. There's been fruit. There's been this true transformation, but there is this season of struggling. There's this period of straying or maybe of doubting God's truth and, and his goodness and struggling with maybe the essential beliefs of the faith. And so here we see this believer who, who's struggling with sin, whether it be with theology, believing, or could it be with the way they're living? And so thirdly, scenario-wise, I think James could be speaking of both here in the church. I think both are possible, both are possibly present and very much a reality of what could be in the church. And so the question is, what's the response? What's the response to such? There is a truth, yes, that we're to live according to, and obviously there's those in the church, James says, that, that stray from that truth, that he says wander off at times, and they need to be brought back. And so what's our response? I, I think simply we, we've got to look at God's heart this morning. And, and I want us to see that as we look at this text, because I think James captures the heart of God. Robert read this, this verse as we uh, were reading this morning, and, and it's Ezekiel 33, 11. I just want you to hear God's heart. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God says this. He says, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I mean, God is a God of, uh, of justice. He's a God of righteousness. And, and so those who, who, who walk outside of his will, who don't live according to his ways and, and don't know him, that they deserve, yes, that it is just that they deserve the death of the wicked, which, which is eternal death. But he does not delight in it, it says. He does not take pleasure in it. It does not. But rather, listen to what he says here, that the wicked turn from his way and live. Yes, God's heart. God longs for all. Just as he tells, uh, Paul tells Timothy, all to be saved and, and to come to know him. But not all will, obviously. But listen to what he says to the prophet. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. That's God's call to mankind. Turn back, turn back, turn back. That's God's heart. God's heart, first and foremost this morning, I want you to hear, is that he is pursuing and that he is a rescuer. He longs to rescue. He longs to rescue. His heart, though, also is to keep us and secure us. I want you to see that in this text this morning. Yes, God is a, a rescuing God, but he's also a securing God, a keeping God. And so what does that mean? It means those who, who have come to know him, his desire is to keep. His desire is to secure and so here's some verses to help us understand what, what that really looks like, the security of God, because it's significant. And it's definitely in mind here. 
Now look at John 10. We'll have it up on the screen, verse 27 through 30. This, in my college years, was a significant passage for me. In a time where God was calling me to ministry, but at the same time, uh, the enemy was just throwing the fiery darts of, of doubt, lacking assurance of salvation. And I remember I had two friends, and, and very much um, like a Job experience, and I had these, these two friends, um, it, it, Job experience in the sense of, of conversing with friends, and I, and I remember these two friends, but they were so significant during that time, and this was a verse that we would uh, consistently camp out on, dealing with God keeping us, and listen to what it says in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, they follow me, I give eternal life to them, they will never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand, is what Jesus says, and he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and not one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So you think of this, it's kind of like a double security that we have in the hand of Christ and the hand of the Father. And he says, I and the Father are one. And so God keeps us. Listen to Philippians 1, 6. Paul says this, he says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it will bring it unto completion, will see it through until the day of Christ Jesus. If you belong to him, if you're one who, like Abraham, who's been saved and believed in God, believed in Christ, and have it reckoned to your account, credited to your account the righteousness of God, meaning that your belief has caused a substitution to happen where, where a great... Uh, exchange, as Martin Luther calls it, where you have received the righteousness of God. Christ has taken your sin upon himself. If that has happened, if you've experienced that, what he says right here is he will see you unto completion. Paul is confident of that. He will perfect it and perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 1.8, Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end. Isn't that amazing? He will confirm you. He's your biggest fan. He's your root, one rooting for you. And he wants to see you finish well. He wants you to endure. He wants you to persevere. And he is working to keep you. And I want you to see that, that, that God is working behind the scenes to keep and secure you in your walk. And then listen to this in Jude 24. Jude says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, Think about that. He who is able to keep you from stumbling. There have been that time in, in life where you've debated, should I do that? Knowing it was wrong. And, and you chose right. And you're like, you know, I'm not doing that. I'm going I'm to walk this way because it's right, it's obedient, it's the heart of God. You think about in that decision, obviously we're making that decision, but according to Jude right here, there is one who is keeping us from stumbling. God is at work. God is keeping. God is securing. And why is that? Listen to what he says at the end of that verse. He says, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. I mean, that's how God wants us to, to see him when we enter into his presence, with great joy. To stand blameless. But God is the one keeping. And lastly, Romans 8.30, listen to this. Listen to this process of what God is doing with us. And he is behind it. These whom he predestined, he also called. 
And so it was in God's heart that he called us and then he called us to himself. Not only that, these whom he called, he also justified. He made right before God. So he did the work of justification on our behalf. And then it says, these whom he justified, he also glorified. Meaning that he is going to mature us now and keep us and secure us until we see Christ. And when we see Christ, the Bible says, when we see him, we will be like him. And we will enter his presence forever and enjoy God forever. And it says, until that day, God is keeping. And he is working this process in us and for us. That's what God is doing. And so as you see God's heart this morning, it's one of rescuing and it's one of securing. Rescuing and securing. He is keeping us and securing us. But how's he doing that today? How's he doing that? He's behind it. He's the power behind it. He's the work behind it. But what's his means? And the real simple answer is this. You and I. You and I. You might step back and say, man, listen, that's a, that's a big work. That's a big work. This work of rescuing, this work of keeping and securing. But God has called the church to have that same heart. And he's called us to be responsible for that. And so look at what this text says. Look at it more deeply, if you would, with me. Look at James 5. Look at verse 19. How does he begin this? He says, my brethren, my brethren. Who's he talking to? When he uses language like that, it, it, it perks your ears up. Oh, wait, wait, I need to listen. Because he's talking to the church. He's talking to brothers and sisters. He's talking to a family. He's speaking to the church family as God's agent here to rescue the lost. Those who have strayed from the truth, they don't know the truth at all. And those who maybe do know the truth, but in this moment of life are struggling. And he says, listen, church, you're the agent. You're the agent to rescue the lost. You're the agent to help keep and secure those who are believers, but yet struggling. And so I love the term here, brethren. It's a term of relationship. It's a term marked by love. It's a term that is warm. It's a high regard for one another. When you think about the church, who are we? Well, literally, we're the one another community. We're linked together. We're, we're one another's. <laughs> That's who we are. Um, we're the one another community. And, and we can see nearly 50-something verses where we hear one another's, right? Some are positive one another's. Some are negative. Hey, do not do this to one another, right? But you think about one another's. What are those? You can think about it maybe now in your head. Obviously, love one another, accept and, and greet one another. None of these take to be taken lightly. Serve one another. Pray for one another. We'll do that in just a bit. We're going to have uh, one of our own come forward who's going to be uh, leaving for the summer to serve in Serbia. We're going to be praying for her. We pray for one another. And, and we're to do all these one another's unto each other. And that's who we are, the one another community. And, and that's what James has in mind here. I, I want you to understand that, that, that you are a one another community and that you have this responsibility. Now, what's this responsibility a little closer? He says, if any among you or any among us strays from the truth, wanders off, drifts, living in air. And so think about this this, uh, this morning. James is saying if there's anyone in here 
who is struggling, whether it's with, with theology, with, with doctrine, or essential beliefs, or anything like that, he says, listen, I, I want you to, to help them. Uh, if any of you are, are struggling morally or, or living in sinful ways, he says, I want you to go and I want you to help them. I want you to help them. Some might think this morning, wait, wait, a, wait a second, wait a second. It, so he's, he's talking even to believers specifically? Yeah. I mean, think about it. All of us, if we're honest, if have been in that situation where we've, we, we, you know, it's the, the hymn that says we're prone to wonder, prone to wonder. In many different ways. That's why consistently in the New Testament we're given warnings and reminders like this. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, listen to what Paul says. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We must consistently be on guard. Guarding our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. That we do not fall. Even when it comes to what we believe to the, to the truth of God. Listen to what John addressed in his first letter. He says in John uh, 2 of 1 John, verse 21 and 22, listen to this beginning. He says, I, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth. So, so listen to that. He's talking to a believer. He says, you know the truth. But because you do know it, that's why I'm writing. Well, so what's the work going on here? It's keeping, it's securing. And listen to what he says. He says, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And so he's telling us to be on guard, to watch what we're believing in, to watch what we're letting into our ears, into our mind, into our eyes to make sure it lines up with the truth of God. And listen to 1 John 4. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, so what's the test? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into this world in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that confesses that is of truth, but that which does not is of the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming and now is already in the world. And so there, there is a spirit in the world that, that is trying to lead us astray and trying to cause us to wander from the truth. That's why the numbers are, are staggering of seniors who will graduate this year and, and go off to college and, and will come against relativism and, and many different isms, many different thoughts and theories and philosophies that they will come up against in a freshman year in college, bombarded with from, from science class to philosophy classes to, to you name it. And they'll come up against those things that will try to knock them off course, and that's the spirit of the Antichrist that's already in the world. Try and delude our minds with something false. To cause us to wander off. And that can be in what we believe in, in theology, in doctrine. But it can also believe in, uh, uh, be involved with the way we live. Morally. I think there's some strong words that, that Jesus also reminds us in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, they will enter. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And so do all these things in your name, and you cast out demons, and in your name perform many, many miracles. But Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And you see, there will be those who are in the church who, who believe to have this, this faith, yet have no faith at all. And it's shown through lawlessness, through, through a lack of fruit, a lack of obedience. That's why John in 8.31 says, Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Sure, we can struggle. There'll be times where we struggle in error and what we believe and, and how we live, but, but God is continuing to rescue. God is wanting to keep and secure that we would follow his word. And so what's the message to the truth is that, hey, when the, those are struggling among us, no matter where they're at, maybe one with no faith at all, maybe one with a faith but just going through a season of struggle and problems, struggling in sin, what do we do? We don't leave them alone. It is our business, it is our responsibility, it is our burden to help. One of the one another's in Galatians 6.1 is, is that very thing, to bear the burden of one another. I remember back in 1995, uh, me and about 15 other guys, all of them were much older. Me and uh, a buddy of mine who were, I think, 19 or 20, went on this trip with these guys and we uh, drove to Colorado. We were going to Promise Keepers. That was real big at that time. Bill McCartney uh, leading that and up in Boulder. And before we went on the, uh, to the conference, we went uh, whitewater rafting on the Poudre River. Anybody ever heard of the Poudre River? Great name for a river. Um, so um, anyway, uh, Poudre, P-O-U-D-R-E, I think is how you spell it. Uh, but we got on the river, and, or, or up to, close to the river, and I remember um, driving up there, and, and they start uh, sizing us and, and putting wetsuits on us. And I thought for a second, well, wow, okay. I, I, I didn't, why, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And then they started saying, giving us these, these tips and, and these instructions and these rules, and, and then they said, hey, listen, it, it, I want you to know if, if somebody falls out, Here's what you got to do. And I thought, somebody falls out. What in the world, what in the world these guys brought us on? You know, what are we doing? I hadn't seen the river yet. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're saying, hey, when somebody falls out, just, you know, grab your arm, but man, your feet have to be in a certain position. And he's like, hey, but, but the guy on that side, don't you all go over there? And they're telling us on this boat how to do that and how to lock arms and, and things like that, what to do with our our, our oars that we had and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, why? I, I thought it was just going to be fun. Now I'm like all tense. <laughs> I mean, it was a young guy, I thought. Because I was pretty, I was pretty, you know, adventurous back then and, and um, w would, would probably do it again. Um, Grace, I think you and I would probably do it again <laughs> uh, if, if we had to. But, but uh, <laughs> if we had to. So they were telling us how to, had to lock arms if somebody fell over, both for the one that fell out and for the one that, that was inside the boat still. So 
we get close to the river and they start telling us, hey, listen, you're going to notice some areas are closed off. And I'm like, closed off? They're like, yeah, because like the river, it, it, it's all four and five right now. And, I'm th- and so I, I, I remember turning to my buddy and saying, hey, what does that mean? And, and then everybody starts talking like, hey, that's a five is like high and crazy. A four is pretty close to crazy. And, but if, if they close it, what it means is it's just impossible. It's impossible. And I'm like, my goodness, and, and there had been a lot of rain and a lot of runoff from the snow, and I'm like, oh. So we get up there, and I'm like, and then I saw it, and I thought, wow, wow. And we got in two rafts that day. There was um, about 15 or 16 of us, and, and we, we split up. And I remember, man, just getting in and thinking, okay, this is good, this is good. And then we just started hitting some of the, the crazy rapids. And I remember specifically one guy who was the tallest I mean, I think 6'5", might have, might have been pushing even 6'7". I don't, this guy, Daryl, he was just tall. He's a cowboy, you know, linky, but, but just stout. And I remember we, we hit a rapid, and he went flying. He went flying. And so I thought, okay, this is why they told us what to do. But I'm thinking, nobody in this boat, I mean, this is all runs from my head, nobody in this boat is... Is, is, is going to be able to help these guys. Because these guys, these guys are just, you know, just built dudes, man. And here, you know, at that time, I was just, you know, but, you know, I know, you know weak as can be, 19 and skinny. And, and these guys with me are just, you know, stout dudes. And, and, but this guy, man, he got tossed. He got tossed. And I just remember, you know, seeing him go in and, 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 and just all of a sudden, guys on that side reaching their arm. I just remember that, just reaching their arms down. And, and they remembered, hey, if somebody reaches their arm out, you've got to grasp their forearm. And likewise, you've got to grasp their forearm and just pull them up. And make sure your feet are where they're supposed to be, otherwise you're going in too. And I remember all that, and it, and it happened. I saw it. It happened in the other boat of guy, a, a guy who, who got tossed to in, in both boats. And I thought, oh, my word. It was crazy. And I was reading this text this week. I kept thinking of those arms that I saw back in 95, on that river. Arms of rescue. And and that's the picture of the church, that we're to be to one another. We're to be to one another. And there's two sides of that, that that we are to go after and help. And then there's the other side of that, of, of willing to take that help and grab that arm. And I think that's the picture that the James has in mind here. That's the work of rescuing. It's the work of keeping. It's the work of of securing. And so, some thoughts here in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, 20. Initially, what what God wants us to be about is the work of reconciling men to Him. He tells us, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them. He is committed to us. Who is the us? Is it just the people he's writing to? No. Who is us? Us. You and I. He is committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal literally through us, and he is. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is our call as rescuers. And as James says here, not only to to rescue, but it's the work of turning a believer, maybe that is backslidden, who has wandered and drifted off in sin, back to 
to walk in the truth. But here's what I want you to hear, is, is this, when you read this, this is not just the work of elders, pastors, church positional leaders. Because he says nowhere that this is for a selected few or this is just for a certain group to do this, which is in agreement with the rest of the New Testament. So who is this for? This is for everyone. This is for the one another community. This is for everyone who calls themselves a part of that. And so in 1 Peter 2, 9, 10, what, is, what, is, what does it tell us? We read this very beginning of worship today, but you are a chosen race. That's who you are. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation for God's own possession. Why? So that you and I may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. You and I were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. That's who we are. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so you and I have the responsibility. We have the opportunity to care for one another through the task of lovingly correcting others when we're an heir. And it could be addressing false beliefs or it could be moral struggles, but it's what you and I are called to. And then look at how big this is. The end of verse 20 as we wrap up. Listen to what he says. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will do what? Save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. How big is this? How big is this? We go back to Norris and we go back to Thornton and, and their rescue missions. I mean, how big it was to rescue those pilots for Thornton to go rescue Norris. I mean, how big was that? How big is it, though, to help rescue a soul? And that's the work of the church. It's big work. There's nothing bigger. The work of the church is turning a sinner from the air of his way. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant, the servants of God, must not be this. They must not be quarrelsome, but they must be kind to all, able to teach, but listen to this, patient when wronged and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. So, so you and I gently are to go and correct those who are opposing the truth, who are straying. And he says, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that you and I, as we see a dear brother or sister struggling, walking in sin, that we would recognize that. And with a forgiving, grace-filled, love, merciful heart, speak the truth in love to them, caring for them. That, that is our responsibility, that they would come back. And he says here, a multitude of sins will be covered. You think about that. This one who has maybe never known Christ before, because of you, a multitude of sins has been covered. They know Christ. They're forgiven. You think about the believer who is struggling and think about it, your help that enters in when you go and lovingly correct that person. And they turn back and, and think about what could have been if you would have not reached out that hand of rescue. And so it's this idea of covering this multitude of sin. And, and so for the whole community, for the whole church, I mean, it even affects the whole church when, when one is wondering and one is straying as the connected one another community. I mean, you're also protecting and keeping and securing and helping the church. 
And as a result, the church celebrates grace, celebrates forgiveness. And as a result, experiences the joy of the Lord. And that's what the work of the church is. As we close today, I, I want you to just get this picture. Jesus gave it to us in a story. Back in Luke 15, he told us this. He said, listen, he says, there's this son who got this inheritance from, from his dad, and he went and he spent it all on wild living. We find out later on, on prostitutes and, and you name it. I mean, he, he lived it up. He lived it up. And he came to his senses one day, and he realized, what in the world? I'm, I'm eating out of pigsty here, or at least I'm wanting that. I'm wanting to eat what the pigs are eating, and, and, and man, but the servants back in my own dad's home, man, they got it good. They've got the filet mignon, and, and, and they got it all, and I'm stuck here. He came to his senses and came back home, and his dad sees him. His dad's been waiting. Dad's been waiting. And dad meets him, embraces him, loves him, cares for him, shows grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Throws a party. I mean, a get-down party. And they celebrate because why? His son's come home. He who was lost has been found. And they've been waiting for that. And that's the Father's heart, and that's the heart of the church. We're about rescuing, about rescuing prodigals. And that's what the church is to be about. Now, there's another son of the story. He doesn't act like much like a son, but he shows great contempt. He shows great condemnation. He, he shows great arrogance, great selfishness, self-centeredness toward his brother who's, who's come home and and shows us how we're not supposed to be. But sadly, too often, we act like the older brother, right? But that's not to be the heart of the church. The heart of the church is the heart of the father, that we would welcome the prodigal, that we would have that spirit and say, hey, listen, come on, come back, turn back. And so, guys, that's our word. I, I pray that, that we would be obedient to the call to help one another, to, to reach out that arm, to go into enemy territory and to be willing to go get a brother and sister and help them turn back. Let me pray.